Today's podcast is brought to you by Premum, connecting Hemong fellows, general oncologists, and APPs with leading subspecialists for quick, free advice when you need it. Check out their website using the special fellow on call link at tfoc.primum.co. Hey friends, this episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rillo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. In today's episode, we're talking all about transplant and the fundamentals of transplant, as well as an introduction to maintenance therapy for multiple myeloma. So after this, you guys will be pros at understanding essentially how to diagnose the disease, how to choose an upfront regimen, and now what we do after we treat our patients with that upfront regimen in order to take it to this next step. So certainly we're excited to continue on this myeloma journey. Yeah, I'm really excited about this episode. And remember, listeners, if you get confused about anything, check out the show notes. We really try to lay everything out very clearly in the show notes. So always refer back to those. And remember, if you like our podcast, we would always appreciate a rating on Apple. It really helps us get across to more listeners. Yeah, I'm really excited for this discussion. Uh, You know, I've been helping out a little bit on the malignant heme side at Rilo University recently, and I think this is going to serve me well in my clinical practice. I think it's going to serve us all well in our clinical practice. We're all going to be myeloma pros after this. I'm excited. (laughs) That's right. All right, guys. So let's go ahead and roll that show. All right, guys. Well, we're back for another episode of our myeloma series. You know, I think the last few weeks have just been, have been great. And I, I feel I feel really good about diagnosis and treatment of myeloma now, and it sounds even more fun when I can quote some of these important studies in my in my notes and seem extra articulate. Yeah, yeah, you know, this is we're finally at the point where we're getting into these important trials, and it's really good to know as a fellow. And a lot of this stuff, honestly, to all of our listeners, I didn't know very well until we recorded this series. So, really important to know. But I do want to say one really important thing. We delayed our recording this week, and I totally got to finish another season of Survivor. Huge, huge thing. And people are probably like, man, this guy doesn't do anything but watch TV. But I, I have a life outside of that. I want to believe you. Mm, I guess it depends who you ask. I know. I know. All right, guys. So I think as always, we can start this episode off with a case just to kind of set the stage. And so I have one for you all. We have a 55-year-old previously healthy female with newly diagnosed standard risk IgG-kappa multiple myeloma. Her cytogenetics on her marrow showed no translocation 414 or translocation 1416, deletion 17P or amplification of 1Q. She had no extramedullary plasma cytomas or circulating plasma cells, and so we know from this, and our listeners know, that this would mean that she's not high risk. She was treated with RVD times four cycles, and she achieved a VGPR with a detectable M-spike by IFE, but it wasn't quantifiable, and she had a normal free light chain ratio. She had a bone marrow biopsy that had shown 5% plasma cells. And so here we are, we treated her with upfront therapy, So now what, guys? Where do we go from here? I think it's important to start off with a historical context when we talk about some of these transplant trials. So the first thing that everybody needs to know is that prior to the use of things like Revlimid and things like 
Velcade and some of these proteasome inhibitors, we really just use cytotoxic chemotherapy for induction, followed by high-dose melphalan and stem cell transplant rescue. And there's a n- numerous historical studies that showed the benefit of this high-dose melphalan strategy. Again, the idea is we use this induction regimen to debulk the disease, and then we really deepen our gains with this high-dose melphalan stem cell transplant concept. And some of these studies said, well, let's just look at doing one transplant. And then some of these studies said, well, maybe one transplant's not enough. These patients are still not being cured of their myeloma. And we thought maybe we get the best progression-free survival and maybe a much better overall survival if we give them high-dose melphalan with transplant, let them recover, let's say about after, you know, one to two-ish months, then give them another dose of high-dose melphalan and transplant. So essentially a double transplant also called tandem transplant. And that was really tested, again, in an era where we didn't routinely use our novel therapies like Revlimid and Velcade, so we weren't using that VRD combinations that we that we typically used. And as we talked about in our prior episodes, our induction regimens improved, and we started using things like VRD based on that SWOG trial that we've referenced so many times. And what we found was, well... Maybe if we are using this VRD induction regimen, do we actually need the transplant, right? That less might be more in myeloma as we go to more targeted approaches. And that really led us to our two big modern trials, which really evaluated if we're using these novel agents, do we need to do transplant up front or can we delay transplant? And that's what we're going to get into right now. Before we get into these trials in more detail, it's really important to know that while VGPR prior to transplant is... That's ideal. That's what we really shoot for as a, as a sort of minimum to get people to transplant. We still do routinely transplant people who are in PR, uh, who haven't quite gotten to VGPR yet. We don't have great evidence that pushing patients deeper into remission prior to transplant really changes outcomes in a meaningful way. The key is that at minimum, get a patient to a partial response to PR with fewer than 10% bone marrow plasma cells. More than that is ideal. And we've shown the prognostic significance of VGPR after induction, but we don't know that pushing people from PR to VGPR really improves outcomes as opposed to just kind of going ahead with transplant. It may well be that getting a patient to transplant is really the most important thing. Okay, guys. So I I think I got that. So essentially, you know, we were doing cytotoxic chemotherapy up front, and then we were thinking about the role of a single transplant as salvage. And then someone had the bright idea, maybe we need to do two transplants. And so we call that the tandem transplant. And then came the advent of a lot of these more novel agents. So the IMIDs and the, the proteasome inhibitors. And then it brought into question of whether we need to do the transplant at all, just because the outcomes were so great. So where does that leave us now? Yeah, this is the key thing that took a while for researchers to really look at. And there's two trials in the modern era that really looked at outcomes for autologous stem cell transplant in myeloma. We're going to give you the really high-yield facts for both of these trials. You'll hear these referenced a lot. The first trial is a trial called IFM 2009. All of these trials in myeloma are many of them at least, are done by cooperative groups. And IFM happens to be a French cooperative groups. If you ever have confusion about what these are, they'll be linked to our show notes. But this is the first trial done by the French. And what they did was they said, let's give everybody VRD induction and then follow that with transplant versus VRD induction followed by 
consolidation with more cycles of VRD. And if they do progress, give them transplant on the back end. So it's really a trial of early transplant versus delayed transplant. Because again, we showed benefit of transplant, but that's when we were giving just things like fincristine, doxorubicin, dexamethasone as induction. Now we're giving these better triplet regimens like VRD as induction. So we wanted to see if it worked. And the primary endpoint of the trial was progression-free survival. And what we found was there was an improved progression-free survival, but no overall survival benefit. 77% of the patients who didn't get a transplant up front got a transplant later on. So the key thing to know here is we always collect stem cells early. If you've given a lot of Revlimid for a long period of time, it is much harder to collect viable stem cells and do a transplant. So all of these patients got three cycles of RVD, got their stem cells collected, and then half of them got transplant, half of them said, let's just save your stem cells for later. And that's really what this trial did. So again, we had an improvement in PFS, but no improvement in overall survival because these patients were getting transplant on the back end. So really what this was is it was a trial of early versus delayed transplant. We showed improved progression-free survival, but there was no overall survival benefit. And that's the big takeaway. So we didn't really know necessarily if transplant upfront improves the long-term outcomes. You may hear, as people discuss more of the details of IFM 2009, that only about 4% of patients in the trial ended up getting daratumumab or carfilzomib at relapse. Those patients were evenly distributed between the two groups. So the overall survival numbers in these studies don't necessarily represent what we would expect with our modern armamentarium of drugs for the relapse refractory setting. But remember that they were, again, evenly distributed between the two groups, so it shouldn't necessarily impact the validity of, of, of the comparison. And so in this study, all the patients also got assessed for MRD after one year of maintenance. It was a fixed duration. And those who were MRD negative at that point had better PFS and overall survival regardless of which arm the patient was assigned to upfront. And so it, it does seem to be a pretty important prognostic marker for the patients. There were more MRD negative in the trans in the early transplant arm, the upfront transplant arm. And it's sort of interesting that this didn't translate into OS benefit, but of course it did correlate with that longer progression-free survival. The caveat here is that uh, the MRD assessment was done by flow with a sensitivity of uh, 1 in 10,000 or 10 to the negative fourth. And and this was only one time point, one assessment of MRD and not whether or not that MRD was, was maintained, was sustained. And, and we're beginning to understand that that may be a more key marker for long-term progression-free survival. I think that's really important, Dan. And the other thing that I wanted to mention that you talked about was that these patients got a fixed one-year duration of Revlimid maintenance. We're talking about transplant now, and patients get Revlimid oral maintenance therapy post-transplant. In, th in this study, they only did it for one-year time period fixed and then stopped. And the interesting thing about this was that at eight-year follow-up, there was a good chunk of patients, over 30% of patients who got early transplant that were off therapy completely in remission, didn't need anything, which really just makes you think, did some of these patients get functionally cured who got transplant early? 30%, three in 10 of these patients in that trial. And in the group that just got RVD consolidation, it was 10 percentage points less. So you're getting a 10% benefit with early transplant for being off all treatment at this long-term time point. 
this is interesting and really just gave us insight that maybe there are some patients who achieve a functional cure and it's not just one MRD time point assessment. We need to figure out sustained MRD. And I think this this was one of the early insights into that. Well, so then my follow-up question to all of this though was, or is rather, why do we still do what we do? Was there another trial that kind of supported this idea as well? Renek, that's a really important point. So as this IFM trial, the French group trial is running, in the United States, we ran a trial in parallel. And the results of that are published in a study called the Determination Study. Again, knowing all of these trial names aren't important, it's just important to know there was a French trial that looked at early versus delayed transplant. Most of the patients in the cohort got a delayed transplant if they didn't get a transplant up front. This trial is different, and we'll talk about why. And remember, in that IFM trial, they only got one year of Revlimid maintenance. In this United States trial, it was different. Patients, again, got three cycles of VRD induction therapy. Everybody got their stem cells collected. And then half the patients got transplant, and the other half just got four more cycles of VRD followed by indefinite Revlimid maintenance. At this time, we didn't know about indefinite Revlimid maintenance versus fixed duration Revlimid maintenance. We'll get to more on that in our next episode, but I just wanted to mention in this trial, different, right? They're getting Revlimid maintenance indefinitely until disease progression. The trial results were similar. There was an improved progression-free survival, but no improvement in overall survival. And this really was interesting. It really told us, well, two trials, we didn't find an overall survival benefit, but we did have a PFS benefit. However, in this trial, this determination trial in the United States, patients got Revlimid continuously. And the question is, well, we shouldn't do cross-trial comparisons, but did it have a benefit? We found that it likely did. Numerically, these patients had longer progression-free survival and overall survival by about 20 months with the addition of continuous Revlimid as opposed to one-year fixed duration of Revlimid. But again, this didn't tell us if you definitely need transplant to change the trajectory of your disease, that there's a subset of patients that may not need transplant up front. And that's particularly important because in this trial, only 33% of the patients, so about a third of the patients, needed to get a transplant. So that means a majority of patients who didn't get early transplant never got the transplant and the overall survival was the same. So it really does question whether we need it, but there was a clear progression-free survival benefit. And that is important because, again, somebody with myeloma, taking Revlimid is much different than having relapsed disease and worrying about it and then now having to get salvage-based regimens. But again, it just really put into question, do we really need transplant for everybody. And you'll see how newer trials and maintenance strategies are looking at ways that we can do a risk-adapted approach. So hearing all these trial data presented, you might be wondering, you know, if survival is really the thing that we're all trying to do out here, that's the reason that we go to the grocery store and buy food, make ourselves dinner, we want to survive, right? But what is, why is PFS or PFS1 in particular being considered such an important endpoint? Number one is, as Vivek alluded to, being off treatment, if we can get a patient to a to that operational cure where they may not need treatment, I think that's a big quality of life benefit. So even if we're able to treat people through subsequent relapses, uh, that does mean more therapy, more doctor visits, and and more stress. And I think that's that's something important to keep in mind. The other thing is that all these studies, remember, these are all new diagnosis patients, uh, and so this is all looking at PFS one, the first, how long is that first remission before the disease comes back, and the reason why that's important 
is in myeloma, as is the case with many hematologic malignancies, each subsequent relapse tends to happen quicker and quicker. That is to say that first progression-free survival, PFS1, is going to be longer in duration than PFS2. And we think that's probably because as people go through subsequent rounds of treatment, we're kind of selecting for more and more resistant subclones. Remember that cancers go through clonal evolution, where a couple of cells here and there that survive one round of treatment have done so because they have mutations or other metabolic adaptations that allow them to survive that that treatment. Those clones then expand, and they're now more resistant to these things that we can try to do to suppress them. And so the idea is that that operational cure that we really strive for, if it's possible, which we think it, it might be, we think we can probably only get there on our first try and before we allow some small population of cells to survive. The idea is you really have to wipe everything out all up front before increasingly resistant subclones develop. And you can see this in some of the data from the, uh, the IFM 2009 study. The idea that over a third of people who got that upfront transplant after a defined period of maintenance, after only a year of maintenance therapy, were still disease-free at eight years, I think that's pretty remarkable. And that's not something we really see in, in other populations with other treatment strategies. So I think that's, that's one of the reasons why we've settled on the paradigm that we, that we have. So I think this is really interesting because I think f- for the first time in our discussion about myeloma, I'm also trying to look at this from the perspective of the patient, right? And so essentially what we're saying is that even though the overall survival on average for our patient population is not going to be different depending on the way that we treat it based on our current standards of care, we are trying to essentially attack and be very aggressive with the management and and treatment of their disease up front to try and get them to that point where their disease is, if present at all, just kind of in the background, and to try to improve their quality of life as much as possible, fewer doctor's visits, fewer IV medications, understanding that, you know, if their disease were to come back, yes, again, their overall survival will be no different, but all of the other ramifications of having relapse disease. So more doctor's visits, more intravenous drugs, more side effects, and and a poorer quality of life. Is that safe to say? Yeah, you know, I think that's that's exactly it. And it makes you really wonder in diseases like myeloma, where we have so many lines of therapy available to us, does OS make sense as an endpoint? Should we be using quality adjusted life years? Should we be using more patient reported outcomes? It's it's an interesting open question. I definitely don't want to dip my feet into that hot water right now, but I think what you said is is right on. Yeah, and, and I think that that is absolutely true. And this idea of operational care is very intriguing. But the other argument to this is that, well, some of the patients in that IFM 2009 trial we're talking about a quarter of those patients in that group who didn't get a transplant were also off treatment, still in remission at eight years of follow-up. So it's a 10% increase by doing the transplant, but there are some patients that didn't ever need the transplant and were still in this very long-term treatment-free remission, which is, again, why we need to identify these patients. And I think in the future, we'll see, be seeing more things like these MRD adaptive approaches where we see maybe some people need transplant and some people don't. And that's going to be really interesting to see how the field evolves. We want to take a minute to tell you a little bit more about the sponsor for today's episode, Premum. 
Deciding on a patient's treatment plan, but feeling overwhelmed by the constantly expanding universe of medical literature? Premum is a new platform designed to help you answer your patient-specific questions with insight from experts. Using the HIPAA-compliant platform, you can connect with leading subspecialists to have your questions answered. And even better, you can get your responses within one day, and the website's free to use. Feel more confident that what you're doing is best for your patient. Man, I really wish I had something like this for multiple myeloma. If you want to learn more, visit Premum by using the special fellow on call link at tfoc.premum.co. That's tfoc.primum.co. That makes so much sense, guys. And so let me adjust the question a little bit, especially in light of this discussion that we just had. And so let's say that our patient had a high-risk myeloma and... Let's just say she had deletion 17P, which our listeners now know is one of the things that makes a patient high risk. You know, I've seen and heard some treatment algorithms note to consider a tandem autologous transplant in these high risk patients. So what's the data behind this? And, you know, how do we get to this point? So I'm going to really talk about the data about what we did to really evaluate tandem transplant. And I want to just start off by giving you the everybody here the answer. Tandem transplant does not have really high quality evidence to do for high risk patients and single transplants very reasonable within a change in the maintenance approach. And that is key. So tandem transplant is not standard of care. It's an option. We'll talk about what the weak data is to suggest that it is an option. So first off, a historical perspective, there was early studies looking at single versus double transplant because, again, we thought, well, maybe we can just push it down even deeper if we let the patients recover and then blast them with melphalan again. And that was done in an era without things like Velcade and Revlimid, so hard to interpret those, but that's really where the double transplant idea came about because there was some benefit, particularly in those patients who didn't get to a VGPR prior to their first transplant. So that's where the historical context comes from. But then we get to the modern era, and we had a trial called the stamina trial. Stamina, I think, is interesting because it's like, how long, how much stamina do you have to get through two transplants? But to very briefly summarize, there's going to be a lot more detail in our show notes. These patients were randomized to intensive approaches with double transplant versus only one transplant. And the bottom line is there is no improvement in progression-free survival or overall survival when using the more intensive approaches compared to a single transplant followed by Revlimid maintenance, and that really informs our current standard of care. That was a trial that was run in the United States, and as we mentioned with transplant trials we talked about with determination and IFM, there was another trial running in parallel in Europe that also looked at the single versus double transplant idea and that study was complicated, but it actually did suggest that a tandem transplant, two transplants, was beneficial for high-risk patients, whereas the United States trial wasn't quite as definitive on that, but the European trial did show some benefit, but there was lots of differences in the trial. That trial didn't use VRD for induction, so it's really hard to draw conclusions, but that's the weak data that in a subgroup analysis that there may be a benefit for high-risk patients getting a double transplant. Just to reiterate why we kind of consider this data a little bit on the weak side, and, and part of the reason why we're not doing this routinely in folks, is in the stamina trial, if you actually look at those who got that second transplant, then there's a significant PFS benefit compared to the single transplant for the high-risk subgroup. 
And the issue was that this was a, a per protocol analysis. So you run into a problem of your trial design essentially selecting for patients who probably had better disease biology and started off with better performance status. So that is a form of selection bias. And, and it makes you think that, can we really draw strong conclusions based on this outcome if we're thinking that this population was so highly selected? And again, being a subgroup analysis, really just not not powered to, to draw any any major conclusions off of. You know, I will say this idea of a tandem transplant is kind of interesting, and I'm really looking forward to our future episode where we talk more about the nuances of transplant with one of our expert guests that we'll be having on in a few weeks to talk about, you know, exactly what this entails and, and how they go about doing that. Yeah, you know, I think everything we talked about today really drives home how important it is to dig into the method section and and read these papers in detail when you're going through a, a study. Uh, find out what they were doing. Ask yourself, does this make sense? It can sound like a daunting task because, you know, they put that stuff in really fine print a lot of the times. It's There's a lot of detail in there. But approach these papers with a critical eye. Ask yourself if the conclusions the authors are drawing are valid based on how they attempted to get to that conclusion. And I think if you if you approach these papers with a, a, a critical eye and, a, and a, a mentality of challenging their conclusion, it makes it a little bit more interesting. It's almost like a almost like a game at that point, trying to be like, well, let me try and prove you wrong in my mind as I read through this paper. Dan, I think that's so, so important. And that's really, when we talked about the tandem transplant concepts, right? You can just read an abstract and say, wow, in that European trial, tandem transplant was better in high-risk patients, and then do tandem transplant for everybody. But that's not the case. It's a lot more complicated. You got to look at what induction did they get? Were they getting Cyborg-D or VRD? That matters, right? All of these things really matter. And we're going to talk about that a lot in our maintenance approaches. The last thing that I want to say is that when we think about early transplant versus delayed transplant, because that's what we're really talking about, we're not suggesting that there's a set of patients who you shouldn't collect the stem cells for. We're saying, should we do it now or should we do it later? And we think that PFS is the appropriate surrogate for this idea, but we need to have better ways of identifying those patients who don't need transplant at all and really look at not just PFS time point number one, but also PFS time point number two, because I want to mention in that IFM 2009 trial, early versus delayed transplant, PFS2 was significantly improved in those who got that delayed transplant. So the whole journey of their quality of life matters, not just the first progression time point, but also the second progression time point with the hope that we'll get the functional cure that will identify those patients who have a long, durable treatment-free remission. Awesome, guys. So I think that just wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow on Call. Until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.